You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 8 of Turning to the Mystics. And Jim and I are here together, and we're very excited to introduce you to our new mystic for Season 8. Welcome, Jim. Yes, welcome, yes. Good to be back together again. It's good. So I think you've already announced our new mystic in a previous season, but I'll let you introduce her. Yes, I'll begin by saying that um, we're kind of entering a new phase in this series of reflections on these different mystics, because up till now, each of the mystics we've explored have been mystics that have been very much a part of my life since I was in the monastery. I was introduced to them there. I've been reading them over the years, given retreats on them many times. So now we're beginning mystics that I've been very aware of for a long time, but haven't really sat with in that extended way. So with Mictel, my contemplative prayer group at St. Monica's, we'd meet twice a month, and I would give a half-hour talk on one of the mystics. Then we would do an hour of sitting and walking meditation. And so I spent a year with Mictelt. And so I spent a year with her and in, in preparing for this podcast, I've been getting reimmersed back in her again. So I'm kind of on a learning curve also with her, getting back into the subtleties of her guidance that she gives us. So with that said, we'll begin as usual with a, what we know of her, who she was historically, to help us understand and appreciate better who she is spiritually, is that Mechthild was born in Germany around the year 1207, where she lived until her death, till around 1282 or possibly as late as 1294. The two main sources that we know about her life is that we know that she was a Beguine. And so by understanding the Beguines, we can understand a lot about her because it helps us understand the life that she lived. So the Beguines was a, uh, a spiritual renewal movement in Germany uh, of women. There were also men that called Begards, but the, the women, they uh, lived in community and they committed their life to seeking God in a heartfelt devotional sincerity of Christ-like discipleship. So it was a spiritual renewal movement of women within the Christian church in Germany. And um, what's different about them is that they didn't live in monasteries, they lived in communities in the world. And also what's different is they didn't belong to a religious order, so they didn't take vows, so they weren't Franciscans or Dominicans or whatever, so they weren't under a religious superior within a, within a community. And so these were lay women living in community in the, in the world they were also very open. If they wanted, if they felt God was calling them to, they could leave and get married if they wanted to and have children and so on, whatever they felt God's will was. And uh, they made their living. They, they were self-supporting. So they were seamstresses or they did house cleaning. They helped prepare the dead for burial. They did different services. And um, this, this was their life, really. And so really it's, it's, it's a deep commitment in the world to Christ and to transformation. And in this sense, it kind of echoes Center for Action and Contemplation 
in the Center for Action Contemplation, the, we don't live together in community. But because of cyberspace, we're connected as a spiritual renewal within the Christian tradition. And also on these podcasts, we're like the beginnings. Mm -hmm. And that all over the world, we're sharing this communal awakening and how we can help each other get closer to God and share it with the world. Um, the second thing we know about her is the book that she wrote. She wrote one book, and uh, she spent her whole life writing it. As a matter of fact, this book called The Flowing Light of the Godhead, uh, she wrote through her whole life on up to old age and dying. She wrote it while she was dying. Matter of fact, in old age, the last two books is very touching because uh, she was living in this community with Cistercian nuns, and she lost, she became blind. She couldn't feed herself, couldn't clothe herself, and she lost all sense of God's presence in life. And um, uh, she, had, she dictated the last two books. So she comes full circle, being at peace in this utter poverty, and then died that way. So she's kind of an extraordinary person in, in, in that way, I think. So when we're turning to the to uh, Michtel for guidance, we're turning to the guidance she offers in the flowing light of the Godhead, her book, and also what we know about her life, just the way that she lives. She's mentoring us, or modeling for us this Christ-like life. Another interesting thing about Michtel to be aware of is you know Teresa of Avila and Saint John of the Cross, the cloud of unknowing. They, they share this awake, they're these awakened, mystically awakened Christians. And then they try to offer guidance to help us to discern our awakening, like how to recognize it's starting, how to conduct ourselves, and so on. She doesn't do that. She's very much like Julian of Norwich that way. Notice Julian doesn't do any of that either. So Michtel's teaching, actually very much like Julian's, is that what she does, she shares this deepening love between her and God. But she doesn't share it by talking about it, but she lets us in on it with the language of, uh, of intimacy and bears witness. So as we read it, insofar as we're touched by the beauty of what she's saying about this deepening of this love, uh, we're being guided by her. Because the very fact we're touched by it, when we hear its beauty, she reveals that we're also being drawn into this love, where we wouldn't be touched by it. And that's how she guides us, I think. Is that's the intimacy of her, of her teaching. Jim, can you tell us about when she was first spiritually awakened? Like, what what led her on this path? Yeah, she does. She, what she tells us is the awakening, awakening occurred when she was twelve years old, where she said she was greeted by the Holy Spirit. But unlike Julian, who gives a detailed account of her awakening and where she was near death and the crucifix, she doesn't tell us what that was. But by the sheer beauty of her words, we get a sense of what it was. So we, she says, so her mystical quickening, and I think that's the way with us too, sometimes when very young, when we look back, the first stirrings of these tastes of oneness or God's presence, it happens when it happens. But sometimes it happens when we're quite young and we learn to grow and being faithful to it over the years. So that's what we know of her teaching. I wonder how old she would have been when she joined the Beguine community. Oh, we don't know. That's a good yeah. question. Uh, I, I don't know how, how old she would have been. Quite young. So she had the mystical awakening. We know she had a kind of this big mystical awakening 
at 12 years old that led her to this life of joining the Beguines and wanting to write this book. That's right. Yeah. And the, and the whole book and her whole life is the deepening of that one awakening. Oh, okay, yes. So she was touched. And it also it's foreshadowed uh, that she is being drawn to it, to the awakening through all of eternity. And in other words, she's saying it's just like us. We're touched. And we learn in wavering ways to be true to it. But the truth to the love that we, of which she speaks and we sit with is eternal. And she's speaking of the eternality of this love bond that begins now when we're still on earth. Another thing about Mictel, she can be kind of intimidating in the sense of, all the mystics, I guess, can be intimidating, but she speaks of this awakening of this love. And as we read it, it may be way beyond anything we've ever experienced. You may say, I never, and also, as we read her, probably way beyond anything we're likely to experience, like this woman's out there like this. And so, and therefore, what's her relevance for that? I think this is important. And to me, this is what helps me to see it. Is uh, something we've said before in previous mystics. You know, in the Tao Te Ching, the flowing light of the Tao, which is really like the flowing light of the Godhead, like the, divin the flowing divinity through all of life. He says, the Tao is like water. It seeks the lowest places to give life to all that lives. And so the flowing of God's love is infinite. So it's infinitely pouring out the infinity of itself all as to the point that it infinitely gives itself away as the very lowest point at which we even begin to realize it. So we live in incremental realizations of infinite generosity. So the very first increments are true, they're very limited, but it's a limited perception of infinity. Another example that I have, you know, when a small ch a child delights in something, we don't make fun of them because of how simplistic they are. You know, we don't laugh at them or, they, they, what, I mean, what do they know? To the contrary, in their delight, they delight us. See? And they delight us because God's the infinity of delight. So she takes us where we are and reminds us that it's boundaryless in all directions in the sincere simplicity of it. And that's always helped me understand her when I got all these mystics, I see them that way too. I think it's an encouraging way to see it. Other than there's some place I'm trying to get to, I wonder if I'll ever get to before I get started. It's already unexplainably begun, you know, by your desire to open your heart to the mystery that's awakened you. So that, that kind of is ribboned all through her teachings, I think. I'd now like to share uh, some opening words of the book one of The Flowing Light of the Godhead, so you can kind of see how she talks. And, uh, and I'd like to comment on it, kind of give a sense of what we'll be doing here. These are her opening words. This book I hereby send as a messenger to all religious people, both bad and good, for if the pillars fall, the building cannot remain standing, and it signifies me alone, and proclaims in praiseworthy fashion my intimacy. All who wish to understand this book should read it nine times. That's how she starts. <laughs> now here's what's stunning about Mictel. When she says, this book I hereby send as a messenger to all religious people, both good and bad and good, but the pillars fall, the building cannot remain standing, and it signifies me alone. The me is not Mictel, it's God. 
In other words, she feels very free to speak as God because she senses that God has been so opened her up that God has uses her as a conduit for God to speak through. Like she speaks, she's speaking with, she has that confidence about her. And I'd like to give an example of this too, where I think she can help us get in touch with this. Say you're with somebody, someone you care about a lot, and they're really struggling with something, you know, overwhelming to them. And you say something to them out of the sense, your sincere love for them, and what you say helps. And you don't know how you knew how to say that. That's the point, like this. And likewise, I think too, po uh, poets and artists, they kind of get started, but when it catches fire and it starts rolling out, they don't, the poet doesn't know how he or she knew how to say those words because they were flowing through her. When the beauty comes out in colors for an artist, they, they don't know how they knew to do that. So, and, and that voice that speaks to us at that time is God. See, they got, we're all conduits of God. And so she's trying to help us calibrate our hearts to be sensitive to this conduit, like this flow it's flowing through all of us in these different ways. And I think that's a helpful way to um, understand her as she tries to help us understand ourselves like this. And when she says this too, she says, for the pillars fall, the building cannot remain standing. And what are the pillars? The pillars are this love. That as long as we're basing on structures, and I think I'll ever get there, what do I understand, and what do I understand, and what do I agree with, the pillars are, it's falling. The building is falling. But when we realize we're being sustained by the upwelling of this love, this flowing through us and as us, carrying us through our days, it stands in that love. I think that's an important, subtle point for her when she says that. And she says, uh, uh, our Lord God, who made this book, so now she's her talking to God. I made it in my powerlessness, for I cannot restrain myself as to my gifts. In other words, what, she re what she's revealing to us is that God's the one who made the book. Like, she, like a faithful scribe, she's taking dictation from God. And God wrote it in God's powerlessness to do anything less than completely giving the infinity of God away to us as the beloved in our wayward ways. I can't help, I freely chose not to be able to help myself, see, to give myself to you and your confusion and your loss and so on, which she sees as the heart of the gospel, the good news is, is that the flowing in of the deep, so the deep acceptance of our utter poverty is the portal through which the love of God flows into us and carries us out beyond ourselves into this love like this, and this kind of intermingling of poverty and love and generosity. I want to say something else about her, too, is that um, in a way, then, she's playing a violin with just one string on it, which is love. But the more you listen to it, it's the beauty of the whole orchestra. See, it's a beauty that permeates the reverberations of all the various um, aspects of this. So even though she just stays on point, that she never leaves this love, she makes these stunning statements about love. Just like, where did that come from? 
Seriously. So when we sit with her, we learn these endless variations are unfolding in us. And uh, it's endlessly evocative. And she helps us to be sensitized to be surrendering ourselves over to that flow. So what she says in, in this later book, which we'll look at in one of the later talks, uh, she says that uh, where, God, where God says to her that he's, the way he puts it to her, is that he's so freely chosen to be so hopelessly in love with her. He quite honestly doesn't know if he could handle being God without her. And she says, take me home with you, I'll be your physician forever. And the power of that is, she, as we re see we're reading that, we know that it's true of us. That God has so freely chosen to be so hopelessly in love with us, God doesn't know if God can handle being God without us in our brokenness. See? And she says, take me home with you, I'll be your physician forever. It circulates back around. See? And we give back to God the gift that God longs for, which is us. Sometimes I used to put it, what if we die and we're facing God and we, and we say, you know, I used to listen to the Turning to the Mystics podcast. We're trying to see what we could say to get in. See? And God listens and I read the scriptures. And, but what if God's not interested in our spirituality? What if God's interested in us? See? And so God says to her in this same passage, she says, what do you want of me? He says, I want you to let me rest weightlessly in your soul. That's what I want. That's all I want. Because that's everything. It's more than that. And it's weightless because it has no credentials. It has no name. It isn't earned. It can't be attained. It can't be lost. It's us. And when you let me rest there, it will reveal to you that place in you that's capable of letting me rest there which is the you that I created as my beloved. See? And so that's where the union takes place for her and all of us. And so to sit with her and read her, so we might read her, it's true of all the mystics, and be taken by the beauty of what she says, and sit in silence and ask God to deepen our capacity to realize how the love of which she speaks is already unfolding within us and how to be faithful to that, to carry it through the day. And I think that's the trustworthy guidance that McTelt offers us. The three concluding thoughts. One is that when you think about it, also I think, for any a poet or anyone who's deeply moved by poetry, or for any artist, or anyone deeply moved by art, or by uh, any composer or musician or performer, anyone who's moved by music, insofar as there's a rich vibrancy to their fidelity to that, or also service to a community in some way, that you, like destiny, like a calling like this, uh, you realize that at the very center of it all is a kind of a, 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 an invisible, uh, quiet unfolding of some unexplainable giving of itself to you. It's pouring out, like you're being faithful to the unfolding of something of what love is asking out of you. And in your fidelity to what it asks, you're enriched and you're channeling love through the teaching, or it might be through, through silence, or it might be through solitude, you know, it might be whatever it is for you, it's, it's engraved in your heart, and it can shift and move as you go through life. But she's always trying to bring us to the center 
that kind of generate that flows out and touches everything in all directions. So, and I think that's another like. So, what is that place in us? The way we put it in a previous session, see, to find that person, to find that relationship, to find that act, to find that community, which when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation with your self-absorbed self and brings you strangely home to yourself near your origin like this. And uh, so we're always learning in a little closer to the, so that it might flow more freely through us, whatever the modality is that we're called to, like this. Another thing I, I think is very helpful with her is that she's so different than Eckhart. And she's so different in the sense that she, Eckhart is so different from all the previous mystics we've been looking, from not Merton, that's just both, because Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and Julianne of Norwich were love mystics. She's a love mystic. So it's this understanding of God as love and being transformed by infinite love into love is nuptial love mystic. And, but Eckhart, notice Eckhart doesn't talk that way. He really doesn't. Eckhart talks about a kind of a knowing and a paradoxical, and likewise, the love of the mystics is a paradoxical love, and it's the love, as we surrender to it, it unravels our inability to live on our terms. It unravels our ability to live on our terms through love, like, look what's become of me. So the knowledge of Eckhart is paradoxical knowledge. It begins with the path of detachment. It's not the acquisition of acquiring something. It's letting go of all images, all ideas of God, of everything. And the more your knowledge becomes stripped of configurations of knowledge, the birth of the word occurs like this. But the thing is, I think, two things. The path of love and the path of knowledge are modalities of being transformed by infinity into infinity. And the second point is each, if the emphasis is on the, know, is on the knowing, the love is always there. Eckhart once said, I honestly believe if we just live by love, we wouldn't need to say any of this stuff. But likewise, if we live by love, the knowing is there. It's like the ones people we really know are the people we really love. And the people we really love are the people that we know. And likewise, we really know ourselves if we learn to love ourselves as we are. And if we have learned to love ourselves, we really know ourselves as God knows us. And so on, and so it's a matter of emphasis. Where if the if one language is in the forefront, the other is always there, and it can shift back and forth. But there, it's the commingling of these two modes of conduits that in, that converge on the on, on the path. And I think that's a helpful distinction to make. And another thing to make is if we look at the contemplative traditions of the world religions of all of them. So in every world religion, there's, it, has its, it has its own mystical heritage, Kabbalah, yoga, Zen, whatever it is, is that we can see that the, the nuptial mystics are much, much closer, are very, very close and resonate deeply with mystical Islam, the Sufis, Rumi and Hafiz, and so on. Uh, Rumi says, O light that fills my room, the moth that circles you is my soul. He has a stunning love language like this. And Hafiz also, you get the same thing. And uh, it's also very close to bhakti yoga. 
to the, the Bhagavad Gita, the love path. And uh, so we see in Bhakti Yoga, and, and I think also in the Sikhs, uh, and the guru of the love poetry of the Sikh lineage, we see these love, the emphasis of this love tradition. And the knowledge dimension is always there. It's the voice of a transfer, knowing through transformation and love. For Meister Eckhart, in this sense, and he's always closer to Buddhism, in, in this sense, of, the, of Satori. So, so the Buddha, you don't hear the Buddha speaking about ecstasies, and it's not an ecstatic tradition. See, um, the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is a deep knowing beyond knowing, like this. But likewise, in Buddhism, the love is always there, because unless you had a love for the desire to be so awakened, you wouldn't seek it. And also the bodhisattva, see the bodhisattva is the one who having reached the final liberation, para-nirvana of Buddha nature, chooses instead to be repeatedly reborn thousands of times until all sentient beings are saved, until everyone gets through, I'm not going to go through, which is Christ. See, you see this love consciousness in the knowing, and you see the knowing. And so Mikteld says, uh, she says, she says, love without knowledge, forget her word, I think yours, we're lost. Mm. Knowledge without love, we're lost. Mm -hmm. see? But it's in the alchemy of, the, of this love-infused knowledge that this path of God continues. So that's, that's, that's my sense of her, that's of the, the, the tone of her and what this session is about and looking at her. Well, I'm very excited to get into Mechtil. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I do have some questions for you, Jim. Sure. <laughs> One is around the worldview of the mystics. And what I love about these female mystics is that they, they haven't gone to seminary. They have no theological underpinnings to what they teach. And so um, this worldview of the mystics seems to come more out of experience than theological understanding. And would you say that Mechtild follows the worldview of the mystics we've already studied? I would in this sense. I would in this sense. First of all, you look at Eckhart or these people. It's true, they have that theological knowledge. It's very interesting when John of the Cross is writing his commentary, I believe, on the spiritual canticle. He's dedicating it to a sister in Carmel. And he says, you won't understand this. But in the sense, you don't understand it because you've not learned theology. And he doesn't say this. You haven't learned theology because the church won't let you. You're a woman. Only men are allowed. 
See? And he said, but you will understand it, see, because it's love. And so what you find in these learned mystics who do, do have the theology, it's transconceptual knowing, rather than getting trapped in the conceptualizations. It's really conceptualizations as poetic metaphors that invite and lead us beyond a deeper way to understand what it means to understand kind of thing. But it's really true with, with these, with McTeld, and you see it with Julian, we're gonna see it with some of the others also that we're gonna look at. I, th I think that's really true. And so you can see the wisdom that shines, it's, and it's not a wisdom learned in the school, you don't get it out of books. By the way, the wisdom, the wisdom in Eckhart, he didn't get it out of books either. The wisdom, he didn't get it, but it's through the books he went beyond the books. Yeah. And so you do see this because she's so, Mictel is so brilliant. It's also literature. Like she was very gifted from, from the standpoint of literature, like an educated, a brilliant person, you know, who it just shines. Yeah, it's true. And this um, love and knowledge that comes out of this experience of God, it's not the kind of love or knowledge that we experience in our kind of finite minds and hearts. So would you say the love, it's beyond the kind of day-to-day -day feeling love that we have for each other? Yes or no. First of all, basically yes. For example, in terms of, say, an intimate love relationship, all that you know of the beloved that you're able to put words to, who you know the beloved to be and your love for the beloved is qualitatively beyond that. So likewise, though, there is day-by-day conceptual knowledge of nature, the world, science. But here's the point, and that's really true. But I think there's a sensitivity to that knowledge that you're at the cusp of something shining through. It's beyond the closure of the present definition. Does that make sense? You, you get the feeling it's, it's not, ex you haven't exhausted it by defining it. See? But in the definition, when you sit with it, it leads you on and on into layers and layers and layers and layers. And, and we would say eventually then, the infinity of that luring process beyond is God. So it's interesting to me that she encourages us to read her book nine times yeah. because it's, it's almost um, cutting through what we think we know about love or what we think the experience of love is to recalibrate ourselves to the kind of love she experienced uh, in, her, in her encounter with God. Yes, I want, to, it's a good, I want to talk about this for a minute where repetition is not redundancy. See? Uh, I want to speak of it in Christian language of the liturgical year and say when Christmas comes, we, meditate, we celebrate the birth of Christ. You might say, I did that already. You know, you got anything new back there? But like a spiral staircase as we grow older, every time it circles around, see? So it's a non-repetitive um, realization of, every, that's what I mean by incremental realizations of infinite generosity. Where the, the, there's monks at the monastery, uh, who uh, they, they chant the Psalms every day, all the, the Psalter of the, for the week. And they've been doing it for years. They know it by heart, a lot of them. But it isn't like, oh my God, this is so boring. I've done this. Like, you got anything? What else you got back there? So it's, it's endlessly gives itself to us 
uh, and the unfoldings of things as we stay with it. So like nine times then is a kind of a very, that's, that's what's being alluded to. So you like you read it once. You could read this once, cover to cover. And you could also read it, we talked about this before, you could also even read it and outline it. You know, and comment on it, do that. And then when you're done, it might take you two years to get through it like that, like a practice. Take a break, and then go back and start all over again. And then go back and start all over again and repeat until death. See? <laughs> so when you're on your deathbed, maybe someone yeah. has to read it to you. See? Very deep. <laughs> and I think we need that. But that very deep place we get to is already giving itself to us as the present place we've gotten to and our sensitivity that there's infinitely more. Matter of fact, there's infinitely more than more. There's infinitely more than the most giving itself to us and touching us right here like this. And all these mystics had that tone about them, I think. Yes. So that, that theme we've had through all these mystics of how do we calibrate our hearts to kind of the presence of God that's always present with us. Mechtild, she's offering a, a path for that, which is to invite us into this dialogue between uh, her and God to kind of get it, to recalibrate ourselves to that that's exactly right. And so it's, so, so it's like endlessness never ends in the rehearsals for heaven, you know, because we're going to be doing this forever like this. And so she steps us into this path, this kind of intimate way. Yeah. Beautiful. I do remember when we were talking about the Beguines last season that uh, in, gen in the end they were persecuted. So the, the Dominicans were supportive of them, but in the end... They were persecuted and disbanded by the church. Is that right? Yes, because the thing is, the Dominicans did support, like Meister Eckhart. And matter of fact, her spiritual director was a Dominican, and he's the one who encouraged her to keep writing. Yes. But the thing is, because they weren't uh, in a religious community under a superior, uh, and because they weren't directly answerable to, and they weren't educated, to have people claiming they could talk like yes, this yeah. outside the clerical oversight. See? And they saw it as uh, they needed to rein it in. And it isn't as if it wasn't subject to uh, confusion, because it is. People, you can go off the deep end in all kinds of ways. But they, little by little by little, they actually shut down the whole thing. They, they, just, they just closed it down. But that's why, like the living school is an example. It rises up. It gets shut down, and it appears somewhere else. You know what I mean? But you're right. It shows you the, the seduction of the church to, to empire, to, to control. And so Richard Rohr's idea of the new orthodoxy is to return to the original orthodoxy of love. Mm -hmm. And uh, what all these mystics are teaching us about. That's what they're all teaching. Yeah. And, and the contemplative reading of the Gospels is the one thing that Jesus was always teaching. It's why everything he says is like falling off a cliff. You know what I mean? You'll never, never get to the bottom of it because it has no bottom. It's the abyss-like welling up of God's voice in the world. It's when we sit with an open heart and hear Jesus speaking. It's, we're there. You know, we're in that depth dimension of daily life. And all these mystics are grounded in the Gospels, aren't they? That, that was they their, kind of their core um, understanding that they, they draw from. Very much so. All of, all of them. Very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I did wonder, you know, you said sometimes she talks as God, if that was one of the reasons the church didn't like didn't like the Beguines, to have that kind of confidence. Yes. What they, what they didn't like is um, claiming a source of spiritual authority outside of the hierarchical structures. It isn't just that it isn't subject to being to misguidedness, because you could be. I used to one of my rotations for my doctorate. I worked on like psychiatric units, two different hospitals, and there was one person on the lock psychiatric unit had religious uh, delusions, and the person thought he was Jesus. A street person came thought he was Jesus, and then another person they brought into the same unit. <laughs> He thought he was Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't like each other. <laughs> so you can go crazy, you know what I mean? Admittedly, many, but they felt so need to rein it in, like to watch over it and like, having control over it. And then it's sad. It just uh, it overstates. It has a worthwhile sensitivity to watch over it, but the seduction of empire, it overstates its case. Yeah. And she also has some parts in her book where she's criticizing the church. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, Catherine Siena does this too. What she's doing, a lot of it is this lyrical love language. But then it's just like Thomas Merton in the monastery, you know, this contemplative union with God. And then he wrote Seeds of Destruction. Dr. Martin Luther King gets the Vietnam War, the nuclear war, the thing. And, um, and so what you see then is see where... Does the mystical awakening translate itself into the justice of a response to the suffering of the world and how it's given to you to do that? And so what she was accusing the church for was not being grounded in this love. See, she was not being, which didn't help her cause any, because another thing that she lived with is the threat of, of persecution or being called a heretic. But she said, I, I cannot not do it. You know, I cannot not do it. And part of her integrity, I think, is that she she lived with that and continued on knowing in her heart she was called to do it, and she did it. I, I think we're called to do that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very similar to Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, who we studied, who were trying to reform the, the church. Yeah. yeah, during the Inquisition. And another example of church misguidedness of the church. Exactly. Yeah, truth to speaking, truth to power through the truth of love. To power, yeah, even at the price of your own life. Thomas Merton once said, "The word martyr means witness." But the martyr, and being the martyr, doesn't give up on life. The martyr bears witness to the illusion of having life, like that. And so, this love always calls us out beyond the edges, like prophetic voice. However, it's given to us to do that. And, and in our own way, we can be living alone. We, we can have that prophetic, vulnerable immediacy to us in our marriage or children or dealing with a terminal illness or teaching. It, you, 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 it's a calling, you know, you, as it gives itself to you, you seek mm-hmm. to follow This it. integrity to love, yeah. it, comes out, it comes out of the love. It's a, incarnate in this sincerity, like a deep awakening intimately lived, you know. And open to be constantly open to new insights to see where you, what God has in mind next, you know. It's amazing that she could write such a, a big book just on one topic, on love. It, so it does show the kind of endless nature. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> point. 
You know, it's really true. It would be true if love was a topic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, love is a topic. Yeah. You're going to get over it. You know, I think 50 pages would do it. You know, but the the topic of love isn't love. Yeah. You can be well versed in the in the topic of love. I have this image I share sometimes. Is imagine a woman uh, who studies God, anyone who studies God in this way, and they become so proficient. They're like a Godologist. You know, and they write books and say, but for all that, all those words, all those words, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've realized this realization beyond words. Thomas Merton once said, we don't need more people to write more books on prayer. See, like you sit by the fireplace, uh, sipping tea, writing, uh, underlining beautiful, we don't need more people to read more books on prayer. We need people to close the books and pray. <laughs> but there's books that can help us to close the books. And these mystics are one of them. The gospel is one of them. Yeah, the book of life. Yeah. And uh, in the book, you said we, we're kind of taken into a dialogue that's happening between um, Mechtilde and God. And it started when she was 12 years old, but the, the dialogue continues. It's, is, that, is that right? It's like she's, she's a, in a constant dialogue with God. And it's also a dialogue without words. See, like, like an intimacy, there's a dialogue of love. And the words get so deep, the words stop. So I think all her words are like that. I think there's a, a union that gives birth to a word. But it's so deeply evocative, the words fall back into silence. And when we read her, we can feel that same rhythm in us. We read the word, but if it really gets to us, we don't just read the next sentence, we stop. I, I don't, it's, it's like skimming over the, like depth deprivation. Yeah. I'm gonna skim on to the next sentence. And what she just said is something, I want to ask God to help me to taste this within myself. Yeah, you're kind of taken somewhere for a moment and you're whole, is that, yeah, is that, out exactly. of time in a way, isn't it? That feeling That's of being right. taken up. And there's another insight about these mystics is that, is that there are certain words, when you're in this, you're silenced by it. So then there are certain words that break the silence because you can't bear the intimacy, whatever. But there, there are certain words that don't break the silence. The rhythm and cadence of the words embody the silence. So the living logos is a word, like the monks chanting the song. It's not a word that breaks the silence. And so these are the words of lovers. These are the, the cry of the poor, the healing voice, the voice of the poet, the voice of this. So there are certain words, the logos, the living word, that kind of is the resonance of this, yes. And Jim, the, just looking at the book, it's a dialogue between the soul and God. Is that is that right? She goes back and forth. Again, it's a lyric. She helps us get a, like aspects of ourself. So sometimes it's between her soul and God and God and her soul. Sometimes it's between her soul and her body. Sometimes it's between, So she keeps moving back and forth. And so in these dialogues, like a little, like watching a play, and so what it does, it gets past linear explanatory ways of looking at these different aspects of ourselves in the presence of God. Could you help us understand how she sees the soul, given that she does go back and forward in these ways? Well, first of all, let's say, let's say the soul, for her, the soul, it's it, it, different levels to it. All the, one, let's say the soul, by the soul she means the interiority of ourselves is our soul. And in the interiority of ourselves, we talked about before the powers of the soul, 
the interior dimensions of knowing, the interior dimensions of memory, the interior dimensions of desire, the interior dimensions of, of feelings, and so on. And so these deepening dimensions of the aspect of the soul, we realize then also what the soul is then, is that it's the sense of the self being created by God in the image and likeness of God is the soul. So the soul is the medium through which, or the, the, the experiential immediacy of realizing the beloved, that we are created by God in the image and likeness of God as a soul. And I think she also means by the soul, for, uh, Teresa puts it this way also, that if we think of heaven as where God lives, and since we know God is within us, our soul is God's heaven, see? and God's waiting for us there. See? Like we're trapped on the outer circumference of the interiority of our own soul, see? in which God, whom the whole world cannot contain, is waiting for us in the inwardness see, that causes us to express this love. That's the way it helps me to understand it. Oh, that's really helpful. Uh, one last question. I wonder for you, Jim, um, what it's like to approach a mystic you're not as familiar with. So for us listening to the podcast, this is probably the first time we've heard this mystic, but we, we may have listened to other seasons and have a sense of the mystic. So how do you approach a new... Well, not new for you, but a mystic you're not as familiar with. This, yeah, this is my sense of it. I'll give an example that comes to me. I saw a, a video, uh, Isaac Perlman, you know, the violinist, and he was teaching uh, Juilliard. He was teaching gifted students, one, mentoring them one-on-one. And so he would say to the student, play this. There would be the people like Mozart or Brahms, whatever and the, the student would play it. And he says, see these, this phrasing right here, like this? He said, do it a little more like this. And so he listens. So part of the student's ability as a gifted student, the student can follow that. That's what makes them gifted. But there's something else he's listening for. He's listening for the call note, like Roca says, of the flowing of a beauty that transcends the one playing it. And it's flowing through this person, and he recognizes it. See? And therefore, it's like a, a contemplation recognizes itself. So you may pick up a new mystic, that particular mystic's new. But as soon as they strike that chord, incarnate infinity intimately realized, you're already familiar with who, who they are. And that can be also to another religion. You can also sit and open, this with Merton, you can open the sutras or... Well, I mean, whatever it is, or some poets too. You can pick up; they reach that. You can, you can. It's a certain intimate immediacy of unsayable things, and uh, it rings true. You know, that's my sense of it. You know, that's really helpful because, as you say, she doesn't outline a path, so so we're not going to be giving a lot of tools or guidance. She doesn't offer the kind of tools or guidance that we've had in previous seasons, but this way of being open to the... I want to say something also, too. Let's say there, there's a certain order, like Teresa with the seven mansions, seven degrees, that's there. Uh, St. John of the Cross, it talks about journey to God through a passage through a dark night. Then there's the night of the senses, the appetites, the active night and the passive night, 
we choose, passively it happens to us, actively we cooperate with it. Then the night of the spirit happens to us, we cooperate with it. And we can look at how it goes through these stages, in a way. And uh, the cloud of unknowing, lexio, meditation and prayer, which then opens out upon and prepares for contemplation and so on. And, uh, but here's the thing, really. It's an order properly followed that transcends the order. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like you do the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, got that one nailed, check it off. <laughs> you know, or 12 Steps of Sobriety, I think I got the first step covered, I'll move on, I'm ready for the second one. You never finish the first one. You never finish. And so the, the Gospels, so there's a certain order that's in, a, in the exercises of Ignatius too, on visualizing images of Jesus and so on. There's a certain order that helps maintain and lead us to this point of overflow like this. But then there's certain people like her, there is no order. But at an underlying order, it's love's order. You know, in a certain, it isn't chaos. But I mean, it's, anyways, yeah, exactly. That's lovely. So we can just relax and open our hearts to the, the love she might be resonating with. That's exactly right. And notice we read her, she's really helping us to, to surrender to a love that's already begun. Otherwise, we wouldn't be touched by the teachings of the mystics. But yeah, I was going to say that we're already on the path. We're already <laughs> on the path. If we're listening exactly. to this, yeah. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Jim, you've enjoyed uh, coming back to her? for this season? Very much so. I've been so, been sitting with her a lot, really outlining her and just trying to put words to it and paraphrasing it. It's been you know, a real gift for me. She's so beautiful and poignant, yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing her with us and looking forward to the season ahead. And we did just want to let people know about the book we're using. Yes. Um, so it's Mechtild of Magdeburg, The Flowing Light of the Godhead, translated and introduced by Frank Tobin, and it's from Paulist Press. And it's part of the Classics of Western Spirituality series of Paulist Press. They did a beautiful job of putting out these classical works. And uh, so it's in that series. So that's, that's, that's what we're using. Okay, wonderful. And you're probably using an older version than most of us will get, but <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm. I think I might be using an older tra edition. Yes, an older edition. But I don't edition. think they changed it. Okay. Mine is. Um, I don't know, yeah, it probably is. I've had it for quite a while. <laughs> Looks well um, worn. <laughs> wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you for this wonderful introduction, Jim, and look forward to this season. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. 
Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.